This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today, I'd like to share with you a few of my reflections on communion. And my understanding of communion originates in a scripture that really confounded me when I was a young believer. It's what I call one of those head-scratching scriptures. You know, when you're reading through the Bible and you come to something and you think, what does that really mean? How does it apply? And it's a head-scratching scripture. It makes me scratch my head and think, hmm, I need to learn more about that. I need to understand that. So my understanding of communion began with a head-scratching scripture. Now, the communion text is familiar to us. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And of course, we read in the Gospels of Jesus having the Last Supper. But very often in churches, when we take communion, the scripture from 1 Corinthians is read. So, in 1 Corinthians 11, we read, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, I have a few thoughts about this scripture. Why do we take communion? Why is that an important part of the life of a believer? Well, the very first thing is Jesus told us to. Do it as often as you will. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Do it. Jesus said that we should do it, and so we should, out of obedience. It's important. It's one of the few things that he commands us to do, physical things that he commands us to do. Take communion. Do this in remembrance of him. And, as I just said, communion is a time of remembrance of Jesus. One of the purposes is that it's a memorial to him, to Jesus. It's a time for us to remember him. He also says that this is a new covenant. The cup is the new covenant in his blood, which I'll talk about later. What is a covenant? Why his blood? This is important because it's a new thing. This cup is the new covenant in his blood. And he also says that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why not his life? Which is what one would expect. Why do we proclaim the Lord's death instead of his life? What's so important about his death? Certainly his resurrection is very important, but why in communion do we proclaim his death? We'll come to that. Perhaps the most important question that the early church faced, must a Gentile become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Let's look in Acts chapter 15, and I'll just read a little bit here so that we understand why this issue is and who was bringing it up. The beginning of chapter 15 in Acts, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's what they're teaching. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, to be circumcised is to bear the mark of a Jew. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles 
and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, look at that, these are followers of Jesus who are Pharisees. So we see that Jewish leaders had been converted. But some of these believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Gentiles must be required to obey the law of Moses. Now this is a very important question. Must we follow the law, the old covenant, in order to be a Christian? Must we keep all the laws in order to please God and be acceptable to him, to be saved? Because they were saying that if you don't do this, you cannot be saved, that salvation is coming through the old covenant, the Mosaic law. And remember, the Mosaic law was not just the Ten Commandments. There were another 603 laws in the Mosaic law. That's 613 laws. Must we keep all 613 in order to please God? Could you? Well, this question had to be resolved by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. And the answer is no. Gentiles are not required to obey the law of Moses in order to be Christians, in order to be saved. As a matter of fact, the scripture says the law is obsolete. It's fading away. We'll look at that a little bit later. Let's continue on in the book of Acts here. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So look at what Peter is saying. Why are you putting God to the test by, here it is, placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's the Mosaic law. Why lay this on Gentile believers that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to uphold. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And now James continues, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them. And I'll stop there for just a second. He says we should not trouble Gentiles. And that trouble is laying on the Gentiles' shoulders, the old covenant, the Mosaic law. And now we come to the head-scratching scripture that confused me. James says we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. 
that was head scratching to me. I couldn't understand. I was sort of, I could understand the first two, ordering Gentile believers to abstain from the things polluted by idols. They would be a witness in their culture not to partake in things that had been dedicated to idols. Certainly, I believe that Gentile believers should abstain from sexual immorality, but why from animals that have been strangled? And why from blood? Why not eat meat from a strangled animal? Why not eat blood? Well, for the answer, we must look to the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say about eating the meat of strangled animals and of eating blood? How did the Jews understand this issue? How do the Jews understand it now? In order to understand this, we must first go to Genesis chapter 9, when God institutes his covenant with Noah. And a part of this covenant is that God allows human beings to eat meat for the first time. Up until the time of the flood, humans were eating plants only. It says so there in Genesis chapter 9. And in Genesis chapter 9 verse 4, God says, even though you can eat meat, he says this, you must not eat meat that has its life blood in it. You cannot eat meat that has its blood in it. God said this when he made his covenant with Noah. In Leviticus chapter 17, we see more. So why is it, do you think, that we can't eat meat that has its life blood in it? That was given to Noah long before the law was given. So in Leviticus chapter 17, we read, Any Israelite or alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any alien living among you eat blood. Well, the aliens living among the Israelites would have been Gentiles. And God is saying to all the people, do not eat blood because the life of a creature is in the blood, and that blood has been given to make atonement on the altar for sin. It's to make atonement for one's life. Sin has a price, and this price is death, the pouring out of life. God does not forgive sin unless it has been paid for. We have to remember that. God does not forgive sin unless it has been paid for. And that payment is blood, and the life is in the blood. And the blood of animals has been given to make atonement for that sin. And since blood was given to make atonement, and the life is in the blood, Jews were never, ever to eat blood, never to take that animal life into themselves. They would be cast away from the people of God. Even non-Jews were forbidden. This is the key to understanding why James would say that Gentiles should stay away from what has been strangled. I understand now. A strangled animal still has blood in it. The blood has not been let out of the body of the animal. So this is important. How does it tie in to communion, however? Well, let's move over to John chapter 6, which is... Well, I hesitate to say, I guess, but it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. (laughs) John chapter 6 is all about desire. And it's actually all about desire for food. 
and it's a discussion about food for the body and food for the soul. And the background to this is that the crowds had come to Jesus because they were spiritually hungry. And he fed them. He fed 5,000 men and even more women and children, five loaves and two fish for over 5,000 people because they were physically hungry. After that, Jesus leaves them and crosses the lake. This is when he walks on the water and the people follow him across the lake. They want more bread. They are led by their stomachs now. They're living in the world. And yet Jesus is turning people's hearts and minds towards eternal life. He understands that they just want to get fed. They want more food. And he's going to feed them real spiritual food, not just bread and fish, but spiritual bread. In John chapter 6, Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna, and they died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, Well, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Wow, well, you can certainly understand why they said this is a hard teaching. A little bit later in verse 66, we read that from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Well, you know, it's possible to be a disciple of Jesus and turn back. That's quite possible. I've seen it happen. And it's no wonder that many left Jesus. Now, for Jews, what he was saying was a horror. They had been commanded never to drink blood. They would be cut off from their people. And now a carpenter from Nazareth is telling them to drink his blood? What a shock. That is a hard teaching. Of course, Jesus explains. He says, the spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. The words that he was speaking about, they were spirit and their life. So he's not just talking about his, the blood that would flow out of his physical body. He's talking about something that's spiritual and life-giving, eternal life-giving. But boy, people were offended. Well, this brings me to my thoughts about what he said about the new covenant in his blood. He said that he was bringing a new covenant. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Wow. So how does that relate? Well, it's very, very, very important. First, I'll talk a little bit about what a covenant is and isn't. A covenant is not a contract. I'll give this very briefly here, and hopefully later I'll spend three or four sessions talking about covenants. But a covenant isn't a contract. 
A contract is where you have two sides, both wanting something the other side has. For example, if you have skills to build a house and I have money, then we can contract together, negotiate together. I'll pay for your skills. I'll receive a house. You'll receive money. Contracts can be broken if one side doesn't fulfill its side. Contracts involve negotiations, but a covenant is not a contract. A covenant is an agreement where one side, usually a person in a position of power, makes a proposal and the other side either accepts or rejects. It's one-sided. There are no negotiations. As a matter of fact, our phrase uh, covenant is the same as the word testament, and when somebody dies, they write their last will and testament. And so when a person dies, we read their will and testament, and the person says, this is what we're going to do, and the people who listen can either accept it or reject it. For instance, when my mother passed away, she said, I leave to my child this and that and this and that. Well, we couldn't negotiate with my mother about that. That's her testament. That's her covenant. We could either accept it or reject it, but we couldn't negotiate it. Another thing about a covenant is that it stays in effect. It can't be broken. Uh, If one side breaks the covenant, then the other side is not released. A covenant stays in effect. The covenant may have clauses in it that say if one side breaks the covenant, then certain things may happen, but there are no negotiations. Covenants stay in effect. Well, so what about this new covenant? Well, we see the what of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, which is also quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. And here is where we see this new covenant proclaimed by the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Let's stop there for a second. He's saying this new covenant will not be like the Mosaic law. God gave the law through Moses to the nation of Israel as they came out of Egypt. And he says, I was a husband to them. So that Mosaic law is like a, a wedding event. So moving on. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So here's a new covenant that's different. Remember in the Mosaic law, he wrote the law on stone. And he's saying in the new covenant, I'm going to write my law in the minds of my people and I will write it on their hearts. So it's going to be very personal and internal and everyone is going to know him. And that'll be unlike this other covenant. The Mosaic law, you were born into the people of God and you didn't really have a choice whether you were going to be born into the people of God or not. But under the new covenant, we are going to know him, each of us, individually. We won't say I'm a Christian just because my parents are Christians. Or like the Jews could say, I'm a Jew because my family is Jewish. Under the new covenant, each of us, individually, will be followers of the Lord and know him. And this is why it's been said that God has no grandchildren. 
Well, in another place, in Ezekiel chapter 36, we see how he's going to bring this new covenant. So in Ezekiel 36, we read, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. If you're interested in studying these scriptures in Jeremiah and also in Ezekiel, underline how many times God says, I will. I will make a new covenant. I will be their God. I will put my law in their minds. I will sprinkle you. I will clean you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone. I will put my spirit in you. Well, that is a new covenant. That is a new covenant. It's unlike anything that had ever come before. And the new covenant came into effect when Jesus died. You can read in Hebrews chapter 9 about that. Just as a human will and testament comes into effect when that person dies, the new covenant came into effect when Jesus died. I think you can see now why we're told that we remember his death when we take communion, because the new covenant came into effect when Jesus died. In Hebrews 9, we read, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. This is what the Bible says, and this new covenant comes into effect at the death of Jesus. Remember, on the cross, one of the things that Jesus said is, it is finished. And I believe a part of what he's referring to is the closing out of the old covenant, the Mosaic law, and the opening of the new covenant. And in Hebrews 8, we read, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is truly a new covenant. It's not like the old one. It's not a continuation of the Mosaic law. That law is obsolete and vanishing. So we need to put that to rest. We don't come underneath the Mosaic law in order to be a follower of Jesus. In John chapter 2, there's a very familiar story when Jesus goes to a wedding in Cana. And it's called the first sign miracle. He turns water into wine. And it's called a sign miracle. There are a few of them in the book of John. And I heard a friend of ours talk about this in Austin, Texas many years ago, and it really helped me a lot to understand this miracle. It's a sign miracle. But what is a sign? A sign is something that points us to something else. For instance, if you have a grocery store and there's a sign that says groceries, the sign is not groceries. The sign is not the store. The sign shows us where the groceries are. It points us to something else. It shows us the way. And this miracle points to something else. 
yes, Jesus turned water into wine. And that's amazing. And it speaks of his ability to control nature, that he can, with just a word, turn water into wine, change molecules. Let's look at a few things here that um, come from that story. As a matter of fact, maybe I'll just read it here just very quickly so that it's right in front of us. Okay, so reading in John chapter 2. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. That's a good mom. (laughs) She's going to influence this. Now, there were six stone jars, stone water jars there, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. There were stone jars there, each holding... 20 to 30 gallons. For our friends in America and the UK, you'll understand what 20 or 30 gallons is. That's a lot for each one of those. Now, these stone jars for other folks around the world hold about 600 liters of water. That's a lot of water. 20 to 30 gallons each times six. That's a lot of water. It took them a while, I'm sure, to fill up those stone jars. And here's the important thing to me. Water in these jars was meant to purify the outward body of the Jews. These were stone jars that were for the Jewish rites of purification to wash before worship. This water was meant to purify the outward body of the Jews. And Jesus turns this water into wine. And that is something that goes into the body and brings life. Water meant to purify the outside of the body is turned into wine that gives life on the inside. And it's the very best, the new wine that gives life. This is the sign, I believe. The sign of this miracle points to the Last Supper, the new covenant, to communion. In Colossians, we read that this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus turns this water into wine so that rather than washing the outside of our bodies regularly, we just drink life into ourselves. Other scriptures talk about this in different ways. John calls this streams of living water. He talks about abiding in the vine or being born again. God wants us to share in his holiness in Hebrews chapter 12. Peter says that God wants us to participate in his divine nature. This new covenant is not a matter of just fulfilling external activities that we hope will please God. It's about his life coming into us, 
his blood coming into us, the life of God into his people. Well, why did the elders instruct the early church not to eat blood? Because the only life we're to take into our bodies is the life of Jesus. That's the spiritual truth of his life in us, and we should never take any other life into ourselves. I'm talking spiritually here, that this is the mystery of communion. It's a physical act that we do, and it's more than just a symbol. It's actually some reality spiritually that when we eat the body of Christ and when we drink his blood, we're taking his life into ourselves. We're not worshiping a symbol. Communion is not just a religious ordinance. There's a mystery there that's beautiful. Communion starts with the breaking of bread and ends with the taking of wine. Our sins cause Christ to be broken. And he said, this is my body broken for you. So when we break the bread, and remember for the Jews, it was unleavened bread. It was not a big loaf of bread like Americans get. It's, it's a brittle bread. It's unleavened and flat, and you'd crack it. When you break the bread, it actually breaks. And Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. So this is a remembrance of him, a memorial of him, that our sins cause his body to be broken. When we tear or break the communion bread, we're reminded of the pain that our sins caused him. And we're reminded that he took the punishment for our sins on himself. And yet, communion does not stop there. The Lord then says that we are to take his life into ourselves, to drink the wine which he says is his blood, his life force. He tells us that we are to take his power into ourselves and then live his life, streams of living water that flow up and out of us. It's a gift. It's not wages. This is the gift of God. It is not wages. We don't work for it or earn it. It's a gift. If we receive this life, then we enter into his life, and his life enters into us. And that's why we remember his death until he comes, because at the moment of his death, the new covenant was instituted. The life of God poured out for his followers and poured into his followers. So until next time, I pray that God will continue to reveal his word and his ways to you because his pathways are always good and they bring peace to the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening and God bless you all.